hear you. Knocking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing Interstellar. So how are you feeling, Jake? It's here, your moment. I'm very excited. This is, I was, I was kind of scared that it might've come down in the rankings a little bit for me, but I'm very pleased to report that this is still a uh, top Nolan for me. Number still one. Still the maybe. top drawer. Yes. Yeah, I... You know, you may be you may be turning me that way. <laughs> I have plenty to say about it, but your enthusiasm for this has definitely been infectious, and I think we're going to have a good time. Yes, very, very, very excited about this episode. Yeah. Um, but uh, do we have any announcements that we've got to get out of the way first? Yeah, we got another little milestone in terms of us, little old us. We've gotten a thousand total plays now, uh, just past week earlier on Monday. So thanks again to everyone who listens and subscribes. We can tell we're, I think it's things are ramping up a little bit, the closer we're getting to Oppenheimer. So anybody who's been with us for a while or just now joining us, whoever you are and however long you've been listening, uh, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, especially also listening on Spotify. Uh, we get a little bit more points for that. And for yeah, telling everybody we uh, about us, we do seem like we've gotten a big spike here lately because of just as Oppenheimer gets closer. But looking at the analytics, it looks like people are talking about it a little bit more. So thank you for sharing. And uh, I hope you continue to share uh, as we continue on this journey here to July. It's all going according to plan. Yes. <laughs> Catching everyone <laughs> in the net. <laughs> but as far as Nolan news, I think we've got a steady drip going now. It's it's really uh feels pretty regular. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that all the stuff I mean mostly it's about Oppenheimer press, uh, but I'm very glad that most of it's actual news and not just clickbait stuff about like here's why Nolan did this and dark Knight and all this stuff. So, <laughs> right. Um, but this new one is, uh, kind of going off of the Killian Murphy interviews, uh, that have been circling, uh, throughout the last couple of weeks. There was an entertainment weekly interview where, uh, Christopher Nolan and Killian Murphy talked together. And the new tidbit of information that we gleaned from that is that Nolan put actual scientists in the background of a lot of the scenes. So I'm assuming that's going to be in the the HUAC scenes and a lot of the, uh, the Los Alamos scenes. And he was saying how uh, they would be in the background and they were encouraged to improv if some statistic wasn't correct or if some scientific fact was wrong. And he said that they would get these just improv impromptu lectures to cast members all the time so they could actually learn stuff as they were filming and that it was just a really cool experience to be in the presence of all that knowledge as they were trying to make this movie as factual as possible so as we know he always likes to to keep it real and explain things and make sure everyone knows what's going on verisimilitude yes so incarnate (laughs) yes would not have expected anything less but very excited for that and that was the new uh oppenheimer news for this week Oh, that's exciting. I like learning stuff like that. And I mean, it, maybe a bit of a, a quick side note. I'd like learning things. 
about you know through Nolan's movies. Let's say maybe we'll get to it with Interstellar, but all the stuff learning about black holes and all the physics of it. It's really interesting. So regardless of what you may think of all this stuff, I don't know, it, it nudges my curiosity in a direction. And I really like learning about some of the, the factual sides of these fictional movies or uh, in the case of Oppenheimer or, or Dunkirk, say the, the real life side of these, of these based on adaptations. Yeah, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it sparks my curiosity and I like it. And it's definitely man knows how to latch on to an interesting tidbit or an interesting factoid. So very good. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, we also saw some, uh, some tweets, uh, to do with the writer strikes. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I just saw the, the photo of Chris and Jonah Nolan pop up, uh, on the picket line, holding the signs on strike showing the solidarity with the writers. And uh, we also retweeted, uh, someone shared a story from the Los Angeles Times from 2017 off the back of that, uh, when Nolan was on the press tour, I suppose, for Dunkirk. And talking about, you know, strength comes from community and all things and in the context of Dunkirk. And talking about almost like not bad mouthing capitalism, but just saying like the quote was the idea that benevolent capitalists will just take care of us. And the people on top will magically distribute wealth and happiness and security to us little people. No, it's time we wised up. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I didn't see this. I had no idea of any of this until I saw that tweet and the link to the story because it was actually kind of fun to just based on the Nolan variations book and watching the film so far, trying to figure out uh, where some of, Nolan's sensitivities and uh, loyalties, I guess. Right, right. Play. And so the curtain's a little bit lifted here. At, at the very least, he's uh, on board with, with unionizing and coming together labor versus capital. And so I was really pleased to see that because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with the writers too here and and with organizing. It's, it's good stuff. So yeah, so the mystery is kind of gone for a little bit, or at least in some areas, but uh but it's good to know that they're on board. Uh, they're not scabs and <laughs> they're part of the union and showing that solidarity. So huzzah. <laughs> yeah. I like the, especially what you're saying about finding some inclination to his political leanings. Cause he does, even the book paints him as very uh, aggressively centrist as we've called it. And he kind of backs away from assigning anything explicitly. Uh, but then it seems like later in life and later in his career, he's gotten a little bit more uh, freewheeling in his approach to talking about that, especially with that. So I'm excited to see what he's going to say in the wake of this movie coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll definitely be talking about it here and very curious to see uh, once once the film's out there and he'll be, of course, talking about it and have something to talk about, see what he has to say. So, yeah, quite the journey. But other than that, I don't think we have anything else here in the notes for that. Uh, I think we're briefly going to talk about a, a couple of the things that we've recently been reading, watching, or in my case this time, listening to. But what have you got this week for us, Jake? Yeah, I've got a um, movie that's kind of sort of you can draw a tangential relationship to Interstellar. But if you have an opportunity to find this, if it's still playing in a theater near you, please, please, please go see Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. 
I think my favorite new movie of the year so far. Uh, it's an adaptation of the Judy Bloom novel um, about a preteen girl who is uh, very concerned with puberty and very concerned with getting her period uh, either before her friends or along with her friends. And uh, obviously I have not now, nor have I ever been a teenage girl, but uh, <laughs> puberty is puberty is rough for everybody. Uh, and it does the thing that eighth grade and turning red do where you kind of think the parents are going to be like doofuses or at least the, the father figures in those movies are just going to be like dumb, ignorant people who don't mm-hmm. understand what their daughter's going through Yeah, and switches that on its head and turns them into some really caring characters. The father in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret isn't on the screen for a whole, whole lot because it's told from Margaret's point of view. But when he is on screen, you can tell that he is kind of baffled by some stuff going on in his house. Like, why is my daughter doing this? But he does really care a lot. And there's one scene in particular where he's comforting his wife, he's played by Rachel McAdams after a fight that they got into with all, all of the grandparents. And it's just really, really sweet and great. But it's a very, uh, very focused, small. I mean, small sounds bad, but it's it's there is a plot in that it tracks one year of this girl's life in middle school after she moves from New York to Jersey. And you kind of see how she deals with all of that and deals with school. But yeah. it's uh, the very like specific inner workings of her life and how it, it works for her. And it's kind of just reminds me of, you know, what life was like for me at that age and everything. And just, it's, it's also just as much about the parents as it is about her and how they deal with this new change in their life and what they're going through and how sometimes when you're a kid, you don't really know what you're so insular in your own world, especially at 13 years old, 12 years old, where you don't know what's going on with your parents really. And you are finally realizing like, Oh, they've got their own stuff going on, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. And it's just a really, really sweet movie. Um, I saw it with Taylor a couple of weeks ago and definitely want to see it again. So if you can check that out. Yeah. I, I saw a trailer for it when I saw the super Mario brothers movie with the family and it looked pretty entertaining. So, of course, Rachel McAdams showing up. She's always a hoot and, and stuff like she's, that. She's, she's so good. There's she one is scene. Really good. There's one scene in particular where she uh, is kind of dealing with how she has to stay at home all the time and doesn't really get to to work. Or she was a painting teacher for a little bit. Um, and there's a scene that examines how she doesn't get to do that as much. And it's it's so good. It's very brief, but it's really good and just heartbreaking. It's so, so good. Great acting across the board from everyone, but including her, especially her. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't expect anything less. Of course. And for me, I said I've been listening. Uh, in this case, it's the 10th anniversary in, I think, a few days, a couple days from time of recording of the release of Daft Punk's Random Access Memories. So... There's been a release with some bonus material to the original album on the Spotify. And I assume in uh, all the other places you could expect to find it. So I was really happy to take a listen to that the last couple of days and have a really good time because I love that album so much. It was uh, is, is one of those that like you remember the, the place and time and like the oh, part oh, yeah. of your life when you found that music and or heard it for the first time. It's really good. Like instant crush is an all time song for me. Julian Casablancas being on there, oh, so good. And 
Ah, it's the whole album. Love it. And so some of the the new material that was released included a just like a studio recording of the track Fragments of Time. So with the the lead singer they had featured on that, you can hear him singing and riffing and chatting with with Daft Punk. And it's kind of funny to have like a little tiny connection to this podcast. They were talking just riffing on lyrics and ideas. And at one point, the phrase half-remembered dream came up and then dream within a dream. And it was just kind of funny. I don't know if that somewhere in their consciousness at the time was buried like a little nugget if they'd even seen Inception because the the album came out in 2013. So whenever they were recording, I'm sure at some point was a little bit post-Inception. So kind of fun to hear just that little behind the scenes it was that track was almost like a like a mini song exploder episode in real time which so it's that really cool to hear that so daft punk random access memories bringing the memories back for me and glad to hear they've got had some good stuff in the archives they're able to share with us i remember get lucky was everywhere senior year of college everywhere uh, as was uh is lose yourself to dance on that one Yes. So yeah, yeah. Pharrell everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yes. Everywhere. Everywhere. Ph- Pharrell was everywhere that year. Our, happy and this we album. Wa- and we walked off the stage to happy at graduation. <laughs> so oh, you did. I mean, I was there yeah. at your ceremony. I, yeah. Uh, I, well, it was I don't know, walked off stage. It was hot. They, they decided to put everyone in one ceremony. Uh, and it was balls hot outside. Oh, yes. Just happy to be done. But then mm-hmm. it, everyone threw up the caps. It was the the happy song so yeah yeah but yeah get lucky was everywhere at every bar i went to senior year that was people talk about song of the summer that was definitely the one yes and i don't know maybe i wanted to subconsciously bring up daft punk this episode because they also in the mid-2000s released a like an animated movie called interstellar 5555 so Anytime I search for Interstellar on IMDb or Letterboxd or whoever, that movie always invariably comes up because it's practically the same title. So I'm just uh, grasping at all the straws right now. But assuredly, I will not be, I, I hope, when we're talking about Interstellar, which is what's on the docket for today. Yeah, tonight we are talking about Interstellar. Uh, and so let's go through some some quick facts here was released in 2014, also the year I graduated from college, uh, directed by none other than our boy, Christopher Nolan, starring Matthew McConaughey. All Anne right, Hathaway, all right, all right. <laughs> Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, in color, 35 millimeter Panavision, and also in IMAX 70 millimeter. Uh, and this marks Nolan's first collaboration with Hoyta Van Hoytema. And it is 169 minutes long. <laughs> nice. And the very brief IMDb synopsis for this movie uh, to kind of condense it down is when Earth becomes uninhabitable in the future, a farmer and ex-NASA pilot, Joseph Cooper, is tasked to pilot a spacecraft along with a team of researchers to find a new planet for humans. Uh, and so that is a very, very brief overview. And we can get to the the big summary uh, from you in a minute. Uh, but first, uh, how did you watch it this time? And what is your experience seeing it before other than the IMAX experience that you had? Oh, yeah. So so this time, the official watch for the podcast uh, that I had after we had recorded the previous episode here was on the Blu-ray. Uh, we actually watched it together. It's the first time we've done this. I think for the whole podcast, we've actually 
synced it up just yeah. and press play at the same time yeah. and had a small text thread going, not not too much, so it was not too distract from our viewing. But that's why I officially watched it. But of course, yeah, about almost a month ago now, I got to see it in IMAX. Finally correcting the inexplicable <laughs> miss of when it was actually released for the first time. I did not see it in theaters that time around. Um, I actually saw it maybe a year later on on Prime when it was there. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know what else was going on in my life at the time, but we did not go out to the make it out to the theater, and I didn't see it then. So, got in a decade later, and that has been that has been resolved. And that's that's just how that movie's made to be seen. Yeah, like. Easily. I, I mean, I know this oh, is yeah. a Nolan film yeah. we're talking about, but this, it's it's kind of like Lawrence of Arabia to me. That's um, uh, why you're holding out to see that finally. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's one thing to see Lawrence of Arabia on the TV and you can still get that sense of scale. I think kind of like the, the Nolan quote from the Nolan Variations and, and near the end when he's saying to Tom Shum, like, well, do you have people, people come to me and they have, ask like well do you have a problem if i watch dunkirk on my phone and he says no because like talking about the importance of releasing in theaters because you know how it's like meant to be seen you can at least like have that in your head so you can know how lawrence of arabia is meant to be seen and the scale and everything but when you actually get there sitting in a theater with the huge wall-to-wall floor-to-ceiling massive projector it's become something else entirely and that was what viewing Interstellar and IMAX for me was like. And I'll talk more about it as we, we go along. But just the scale of things. And actually, Lawrence of Arabia is really an apt comparison because that's kind of what it was like for me watching Lawrence of Arabia when I went to see it uh, several years ago. Fortunately, Alamo had a screening and I got to see it there. And you know, finally convinced Haley, or no, well, not really convinced her, but she was able to see like, okay, yeah, I get this now. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's why, that's why we go do some of these things here. Uh, so I've actually planned to talk about like, I guess my, my journey with Interstellar over the years. So I'm sort of maybe withholding some details from the first time I watched kind of, I was going to talk about that later, but yeah, the first time I saw it was on prime video. Wasn't so sure of it the first time, but Things have changed since then, and I'll talk about that. But what about you, Jake? Yeah, uh, like you said, this is the first time we managed to watch it together uh, for the whole podcast, and so I did that on the Blu-ray copy that I have, and especially talking about scale. So I have a bigger TV downstairs uh, in my living room, and I've got a smaller, like, probably 30-inch TV upstairs uh, here in the office. And I had to watch it on that smaller TV because my Wi-Fi has been out for, like, half this week. Uh, and so I was watching it on that smaller TV on the Blu-ray copy. And even then I can see the way that the scales change. I could, the letterbox comes back for the, most of the dialogue scenes and most of the action scenes, the picture fills the whole screen. So you can definitely tell that that's when the IMAX was used. And so I even, I still got the sense of that scale and that importance of that, like you were talking about, even on that small TV. So that was, that was good. I definitely resonated with that. Uh, but the first time I watched it, um, I did catch it in its original theatrical run back in 2014. I was living up in Wise County in Decatur, and they had one movie theater there, and it did not have that opening weekend. 
So I drove myself to Denton to a movie tavern to watch yeah. it, uh, to make sure that I saw it opening weekend. So they didn't have an IMAX screen, but they did have one of their bigger screens. There uh, was how I saw it. And it was a later showing if I remember correctly. So there wasn't really a whole lot of people in there, which I was surprised by since it was the next big Nolan movie. It was the holiday season though. Yeah, that's true. It was, yeah. Cause it was what time of year did it come out? November. November. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then yes, that's why I was, uh, I was working all the holidays back then. Oh yeah. <laughs> of a, a young journalist. So I saw that and was immediately taken by it. I really, really liked the, the emphasis on big maximalist emotions, um, especially that score, hearing that score in a theater for the first time was absolutely nuts. I can't imagine what it would be like hearing it in IMAX. Um, (laughs) to the point where, to the point where I, on the way to the car in the parking lot, bought the soundtrack on my, on iTunes, on my phone and listened to the whole thing on the way home that night, just because I was so taken by it. But yeah, I was, I was in on it from day one, but. Uh, look back at uh, what I wrote about it when it first came out because I did a year in review uh, roundup thing in 2014. Ooh, nice. And that was in my top 10 of the year. I did like an alphabetical list, so I didn't rank it. But uh, what I said was the finale may be a bit too schmancy for some viewers. And while this isn't Nolan's best work, in my opinion, it's certainly his most human. <laughs> The organ-heavy score by Hans Zimmer doesn't hurt either. Um, And I would like to retract that statement from 2014, Jake. I do think this is his best work. Uh, I think I was, I don't know. Life's changed. Life's happened a lot (laughs) since 2014 for me. Uh, Jumping right into it. Taking the suspense out of the end of podcast rankings. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, (laughs) this is, but I I mean, I don't know though. Now that I've I've read some more about Dunkirk and looked at some of the themes about that, I don't know where that's going to land for me. But I'm that might get a little bump up too. But I think at the time when I wrote that, my mind was firmly like Dark Knight is his best and there is no topping it. But as I've come right. back to this movie more and more and more, I've appreciated it more. I really like the big swings it takes, especially at the end. And I really like the performances a lot. I'd also come to learn I just like McConaughey pretty much in anything. <laughs> um, yes, the charisma <laughs> in that man is just he radiates it. A nuclear level. <laughs> yeah. And then and we can talk more about like the ending and like the humanism stuff and all the other stuff that we can get down to. But ever since then I've I've watched it occasionally on the Blu-ray copy. I think this is maybe the third time watching it at home. Uh, so I don't watch it as much as I have seen some of the other ones, but yeah, this confirmed definitely my favorite one. Yeah. And I can definitely, I mean, for me, I, again, we'll get more into this, but it does, it has gotten better and better every time. So yeah, really, really looking forward to talking about this one. And I, cause I feel like this is maybe my most interesting relationship with a, a Nolan film and how it's evolved. So before we get to that point though, we'll talk a little bit more about a little bit wider scope on the plot, a little bit more detail. And uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take the reins on that one today. Okay. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot to get through for this one. To go a little bit beyond what the IMDb synopsis was, we've got our, our main character, our hero, 
Joseph Cooper training to be a pilot. And he's not doing that in the world that we encounter at the beginning of the film because a crop disease simply called blight is taking out every single edible food one by one. And so Cooper is a pilot at heart, but he's got to stay earthbound to try and help humans survive and get through this terrible time. And he lives on a farm with his son, Tom, and his daughter, Murph, and his father-in-law, Donald. And this being a Nolan film, his wife is, of course, dead. And so pretty early on, we're introduced to the fact that Murph has something going on in her bedroom. Things are falling off bookshelves and breakings, and she's saying it's her ghost. And Cooper is telling her, you know, there's no such thing as a ghost. But let's be scientific about this. Make some observations. Record some facts. So Murph is a really bright whip smart kid and starts doing just that she does get in trouble at school for daring to believe that the apollo moon landings were real so murph and and cooper kind of outcasts in that way but eventually uh, there's a, a dust storm blowing through murph gets to shut her window cooper goes in there and sees the room flooded with dust but it's falling in a very interesting way and they figure out it's gravity and it's giving them coordinates to this place that they drive to it turns out to be nasa and cooper surprised because he thought that nasa got shut down but one of the people helping run nasa is an old professor of his professor brand played by michael kane and what nasa's working on is Uh, They've sent out some missions called the Lazarus missions. 12 astronauts went out into the deep reaches of space to investigate another entire galaxy. But how are they able to reach this? Because there's a wormhole out near Saturn that allows us to travel through it as humans and get to this place. So Professor Brands explained to Cooper the dire situation that Earth is dying, that corn, the last viable crop, is going to be gone very soon within Murph's generation. And so Professor Brand is trying to convince Cooper to be the pilot. So Cooper decides to take the mission at the risk of possibly never seeing his family again. Uh, Murph is extremely upset about this and uh, he has to say goodbye. But before he goes, Murph tries to convince him one last time to stay by saying that, hey, my bookshelf, you told me to figure out what is going on with it but it's a message in morse code it says stay and cooper can't because on the one hand being a pilot and doing this is what he was born to do he's got to make this decision and he wants to try and be the hero and, and save you know earth and save murph and his family so he goes uh and says you know i'm coming back i'll i'll come back i promise and and like one of the, the first huge scene that made me sob he's driving away in the truck and then murph like runs out too late to try and say goodbye after giving him the cold shoulder and then it pretty much immediately cuts to the launch and they're in space with professor rand's daughter amelia played by anne hathaway and two other scientists doyle and romilly romilly low-key one of the best characters in this whole movie and uh, they go out to Saturn uh, with a couple of robot pals as well, TARS in case. 
and they head out to Saturn, they go through the wormhole, and they start touring these planets. And the first one they find is just a water planet very close to this enormous black hole. And all this is water with huge, massive, like skyscraper size waves. And the problem with this planet is the one they get stuck there only for a few hours wouldn't normally be a problem, except for there's a gravity well that they go into to where about one hour on that planet is seven years. So they get stuck there. They lose Doyle. They get back up to the ship, get back onto quote unquote normal time and have lost 23 years. That's where we get the second emotional gut punch. When Cooper pulls up his messages and sees 23 years worth of messages from his son as he grows up and eventually says goodbye and nothing from Murph except for the very last message where she says, yep, now we're the same age. You told me one day we might be the same age when you got back. Well, now I'm as old as you are. So it'd be really nice if you could come back. At that point, we find out that Murph has grown up and is working at NASA trying to solve the uh, equation that unifies relativity with quantum mechanics. And being able to solve that would you know, save everybody and help everyone get off and get where they're going and move on to the, the new place. And then since Cooper and Brand spent so long on the first planet, they can only go to one of the other two remaining planets. One of them is inhabited by Dr. Mann, the person who convinced everyone to go, who turns out is played by Matt Damon. And... Cooper convinces everyone to go to Dr. Mann's planet because one reason is it's a little bit easier and shorter to get there and he still has time to get back home. So they go there and it turns out he faked all his data, put himself into hibernation and knew that someone would come get him because he was the the big important guy. And so he attacks Cooper because Cooper's going to take one of the ships to get back home because uh, just after they landed on Dr. Mann's planet, they found out that Professor Brand had lied about the possibility of saving people on earth that their flight was actually the last one out and no one's expected to survive on earth and uh everything's hopeless there essentially uh, professor brand has uh, found out many years prior that he couldn't reconcile relativity and quantum mechanics because the data you need to be able to reconcile that you have to be able to see inside a black hole the singularity but nobody can do that it's literally impossible so Dr. Mann's like, no, we need the ship to go onto the other planet and we're going to continue the mission. It's just going to be us. But he's also kind of lost, a, <laughs> got a screw or two loose. And he commandeers, Dr. Mann commandeers one of their ships, tries to fly back to the Endurance. And Brand and Cooper try to chase him back there. And while they're flying back there, Dr. Mann docks with the Endurance, but imperfectly. And he's trying to get in the airlock. He blows it out. The ship's spinning, crashing toward the planet. And in probably like the tensest, coolest scene of the movie, Cooper's like, no, we're going to do this. So he does that. It's really cool. And then there's really no way to get back to Earth after this with the ship crippled. So Cooper devises a maneuver to slingshot around the black hole to get to the last planet so that they can keep humanity alive. But without telling Amelia, he is going to drop himself into the black hole when they go around because Newton's third law, you have to leave something behind to get where you're going. So he falls in there, ends up in a thing called the Tesseract. But this Tesseract allows Cooper to view 
Murph's bedroom from when she was a kid and go through all kinds of points in time. He's given a way to physically navigate time. And so he finally figures out that he was Murph's ghost. So he's the one inside this thing, sending the gravity that pushes the books off the shelves. And he sends the coordinates to NASA so they can find it. And then he put was the one who sent the message to stay. Of course, unsuccessful because it's basically a closed loop time uh, narrative. And so the final thing he realizes prompted by Tars, who's stuck in there with him and is able to communicate with him, is that they were able to get the data they needed, but they don't know how to transmit it. They can't transmit it because nothing can escape a black hole. So Cooper is able to take the watch that he left Murph before he left that she threw away in anger at the time, but she kept it and it was left on a bookshelf at one time. So he taps the quantum data into it in Morse code. He just sends the gravity waves to make the, the second hand tick. And so once Cooper does that, uh, he kind of satisfies the conditions of his little stay in this Tesseract. It closes up and he gets shot back through the black hole and ends up back near Saturn. Meanwhile, back on earth, Murph is still furiously trying to solve the problem of gravity. She hasn't given up. She's trying to find some way to do it. And she tells uh, Topher Grace as a character who's uh, a doctor with NASA. She's like, I have a feeling that there's somehow the solution like is back at my house in my old bedroom somehow, some way, somewhere. And so uh, she goes back into her bedroom and is just trying to figure things out. This is all cross cutting with a bunch of things. Uh, I'm making it very linear. And then... (laughs) She finally figures out, one, that Cooper was her ghost. And number two, she's trying to figure out, well, how are you how are you going to get the information? How are you going to do it? And she finally realizes it's the watch. And she comes out and says, because uh, she's been haunted by the fact that, well, did my dad know that he was leaving me here? Did, did he really like expect to come back? Was that a lie? Um, and so she's been dealing with those feelings of abandonment the whole time. But she comes out and is able to tell her brother. She's like, no, dad knew he gave us this watch he's like this whole time he did it he uh, always wanted to come back and this is how he's saved us so she gets the watch she solves the equation and all is well so then once cooper resurfaces near saturn it's he ends up on the space station he wakes up and everyone says yeah like your daughter's on the way to see you um she's too old she shouldn't be traveling like this but it's murphy cooper we're talking about the person who saves all of humanity And so finally Cooper gets to see Murph. She's now an old woman surrounded by a couple generations of family. And in the third scene that absolutely shatters everything about your emotional state in this movie, uh, they clear the room and Cooper gets to talk to Murph and he tells her, it was me, Murph, I was your ghost. And she says, I know. And she holds up the watch on her wrist and she's, tells him, you know, I always knew you'd, I'd see you again. You come back. And he says, why? How'd you know? And she says, because my dad promised me and cue the tears. And (laughs) uh, Murph tells Coop to go on and find Brand, go to her planet because he's wondering what to do now. And she says, you've got to go. I've got all my other family here and no parent should have to watch watch their child die. And so Brand's probably just now getting settled down and prepping everything for the new planet and our new home 
and it shows Cooper commandeering one of the ships out of the space station and going on his way and ends on a shot of Brand very much, in fact, getting that new planet ready. And then the, the movie cuts and ends. So a whole lot to pack in. And I think I hit the high points there. There's so many things layered into this thing that I, I totally missed. But but the emotion and, and the, the big beats are there. And I'm sure we'll get into more of it as we continue along. Yeah, that was a good job getting all that down. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And making it linear, especially at the end where it cross cuts to the the farm and the Tesseract and everything kind of intercuts, but you did a good job making it straight through linear. Ooh, yeah. Let's talk about the thing. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let me see. Where do I even, where do I want to start? I have a um, place so I can start. Okay. With uh, talking about my, my journey with this film. So the first time I watched it, it, I was like totally on board, loving it right up until he ends up in the Tesseract. And then I was trying to do exactly what everybody, I think, watching a Nolan film at that time was trying to do. I was trying to solve it. I was trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't I, I wasn't familiar with the science, really, for one, which, I mean, the whole Tesseract part is definitely speculative, <laughs> obviously. But I was still too stuck on trying to figure out, like, well, wait a minute, how would this actually be possible, blah, blah, blah. And I was just hung up on that. So I liked it, but I wasn't sure if I loved it. But as I said earlier, every time I watch this now, it just gets better and better. Uh, I waited maybe a couple years before I watched it a second time. And each time I've watched it, I've kind of been in a different stage in my life. So the first and second times, I was just simply married. The third time I watched it, which was actually in 2020, uh, in the early stages of the pandemic, I was a father of one and that hit even harder and things spiked up in terms of my appreciation. And then the last couple of times for this podcast, um, I've been a father of two now, a boy and a girl. So just the, again, the parallel situation in some regards, uh, especially since I have yeah a young girl who seems to be full of vim and verve just like birth, uh, really, really feel that. And maybe some, some of my own uh, things with my relationship with my dad too, it really just like hits deeply on that. So everything just like makes more sense to me, gets better every time. And I completely and wholly and unreservedly love this thing now. And I think the thing I'm like most pleased yes. with, yes. yeah. <laughs> I'm an unapologetic stan is what I wrote on Letterboxd for for the review. And yeah, I'm here for it. And I think the after reading the Nolan variations, the thing I was really happy to see with Nolan talking about this movie is Tom Schoen kind of took issue with the these fifth dimension beings who put the wormhole where it was and made the Tesseract. And Nolan was talking about how some people were just like, yeah, a lot of people viewed it trying to just figure it out and like mm-hmm. solve yeah. the puzzle. And so his his quote on this was, what I found is the people who let the film wash over them get the most out of it. They're not approaching it like it's a crossword puzzle or like they're going to get a test afterward. So with just letting it wash over you, like that's how I approached it the second time very consciously. I saw it because I was like, maybe I just thought too hard. Maybe I'll just like, now that I know it's what happens, maybe I'll just take more of an approach and 
And I did that. And it was like exactly what happened with me. It tried my experience perfectly. And I was just really proud of myself for arriving at that conclusion of how to approach it on my own. And with like no knowledge of that invitation from the director to approach it this way. So it makes me really happy. And this thing is easily no question an all timer now. So I love it. Nice. Yeah. I noted that quote to the, the, well, and then also the, well, you should love it more unreservedly. <laughs> like the, yeah. It's like, I do just, like the film, like it more unreservedly, just so ice cold. Yeah. And I followed that advice and I have prospered for sure. And you can take that same mindset to Tenet as well, which I have not rewatched since the first time I've seen it. So I'm very curious to see how that Me neither. We're going to be, yeah, yeah. Watching it a second time. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, my relationship with it, I guess, I don't know. This is, um, so in the Nolan variations, the first story that is told about how Nolan came up with this was he was talking with him. Uh, I think Jonah was there, his wife, uh, Emma, and Hans Zimmer at a dinner. And Hans Zimmer was talking about parenthood and raising children and compared it to your life changes because once you have children, you start looking at the world and you start looking at yourself through your children's eyes. You don't really look at yourself through your own eyes anymore. Yes. Um, and uh, that stuck out to me on this one, but kind of weirdly in reverse for me, like seeing the world through my parents' eyes. Um, I don't have kids like you do. So I, I mean, I can't imagine what <laughs> watching this <laughs> what do to you after having not just one but two kids um yeah especially a daughter uh for this movie my god um but the scenes where he's catching up on where mcconaughey's catching up on decades worth of video messages from his kids just hit me like a ton of bricks this time because i um so my dad was in the military and when i was sixth grade so i would have been 12 to 13 years old, I think was when he was deployed to uh, Afghanistan. And so this was back before uh, zoom was a thing, like even a flash in someone's eyes. Uh, Skype was the big thing that you had to use to do any sort of video chat. Oh yeah. And it was not great technology. Like this no. was, we still had DSL internet. It took hours to download one song to your MP3 player. Not even an iPod. This is how old this was. <laughs> I mean, they had iPods out. We didn't have those in my house. Uh, but yeah. um, so it was a very different tech landscape than today. But the the only way that we would be able to talk to my dad when he was gone for a year was either we would get a phone call like he tried to make it as routine as possible whenever he could, but like sometimes it would be a random thing during dinner or sometimes it would be on a weekend and we were just like kind of hanging out by the phone. If we were home, whenever it happened, um, we would try to get notified by email. <clears throat> but if we actually wanted to see him and do a video chat, we had to make an appointment with his unit, go to his unit's office, go into a big conference room that they would use where they would talk to, you know, other people overseas. And then it would be this really like crappy Skype feed. And we got maybe like 20 minutes before they had to shuffle whoever else was next in there. And like, it was, you know, you were hanging out with all the other wives and kids waiting to talk to people. Yeah. Um, and so I, it was always like, I wasn't, uh, like sad or depressed about it. Really. It was just, it felt weird. Like knowing that like, 
you could see that person there, but they're thousands of miles away and in a completely different time zone. So like time wasn't working the same for us, you know, at the same time. So it's yeah. kind of related to that here in this movie, but then also watching it this time, I, I think I finally under, I don't think I can understand it, but I think I finally kind of wrapped my brain around a little bit, like what it must've been like for him to do that. Like, I left my kids and my wife for a year and I'm off on this thing. Don't know what's going to happen, but I am watching my kid basically grow up for a year and I'm not there. And the only visual representation I have of that is these couple minutes every week or every two weeks or however many times it was on a Skype call. And like I was, you know, I was turning 13. So like it was kind of a pivotal moment. A lot of changes were happening. My brother was like, uh, he would have been eight at the time, I think. So a lot of stuff going on with him too. So just seeing the, I don't know, the emotional weight of that finally, I guess, just hit me now of watching that and figuring out all of that. And so I was like, those scenes already get to me on a film emotional level. But then watching that now, it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually never thought about it in that perspective either because. I approached it generally from being a dad myself, but yeah, we actually have kind of a similar experience there, which I don't know if we've ever really talked about this. So, Hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> my dad was in the air force and was shipped off to Korea for a year when I was about five or six and oh, man. being so young at the time, I, I don't even, didn't really understand why or how, but all we had in the mid nineties was, just phones just phone yeah. calls yeah. yeah the uh we had the the, the minutes cards we got to use that was yeah. fun. oh man yeah oh, yeah. That? We had, yeah. yeah we had uh, those. yeah and as it turned out once my dad left for korea i would and i was never living in the same house with him again because then when he got back from korea he immediately basically got sent off to italy during the kosovo crisis to be part of the nato task force and then by the time he came back from that my parents got divorced and he went to live in San Antonio and began his, uh, his post air force career doing contract work. So it was weird. And I really yeah. Yeah, hadn't thought too much about what it must've been like for him. I mean, I know it was tough, but to think of seeing me go from being in kindergarten to almost done with elementary school by the time he's back living in the States full time, just yeah. Like time, how, crazy it must have been because i mean it was hard enough for me and like i talking about like some of my my deep issues or or like <laughs> things with my relationship with my dad and i think this movie really tapped into it and that's another thing that i just discovered as you were telling your story that it tapped into right here so yeah uh, we're glad, be glad to be of help <laughs> yeah, yeah doing my therapy here on the podcast really <laughs> so. i'll bill i'll bill you for the hour yeah <laughs> <laughs> no. um but that yeah all of that just really hit me like a ton of bricks this time and the other thing that was interesting about that anecdote from hans zimmer and them at that dinner that they had was the idea stuck with nolan's mind and he the book says that he said you could almost read it as a ghost story mm -hmm. which is how he started doing Murph's ghost and how he did all of that stuff at the beginning. And that was kind of the core idea of it. And uh, real quick with you mentioning that anecdote, I connected it to obviously the, yeah, the, the line they put in the movie with 
Cooper saying now we're just there to be memories for our kids was yes. what his wife yeah. said when his kids were born. And he followed that up with saying, you know, once we're parents, we're just the ghosts of our children's futures. Uh, and then off of that, it made me feel very strong vibes from The Last Jedi uh, with Yoda telling Luke, we are what they grow beyond. And you know, Ooh, we yeah, both love yeah, yeah. The Last Jedi very much. And that's probably the best line in that movie. I might have to say off the top of my head. So having those vibes just coalesce really just crank things up too. Exactly. Yeah. And kind of on that note, the other thing that I thought was interesting that Nolan said about just the concept of making the movie in general was he compared it to that, but then also compared the space exploration stuff to going off to make a movie and do this thing you see you know saying like i'm very grateful that this is my job i'm very excited that i get to do this for a living but it is tough being away from your family for so long just to do this thing that not a lot of people might understand your obsession with it um yeah and you could almost read like if inception is a meta commentary on making the movie and getting the crew together and sticking it to the studio or whatever this could be a commentary on the heartache you feel when you go away to make that movie and so so much so that he talks about the guilt that's involved with that which is another recurring theme throughout all of his movies is the the guilt of making a decision uh to either leave your family or to do whatever his protagonists do yeah so much so that the working title for the movie was flora's letter which is flora's his daughter's name who Mm -hmm. was i think 11 at the time that he started making this movie she has a cameo in the film too as well but where is she, is she at the big get like at the baseball game? Uh, no, when adult Murph Jessica Chastain is driving over to Tom's farm, and there's that shot of the two kids in the back of the truck as some oh, people are yeah, leaving yeah. and being refugees. The the girl in that shot is Flora Nolan, apparently. Oh, cool. Yeah, but uh, that too. I mean, I guess we can go in with the uh, the stuff about being a parent. Yeah, and the guilt and kind of all the emotional work in this movie. Which let it be said, let this narrative die. Christopher <laughs> Nolan can't do emotion. Please stop. Cause if like what you've said it before, what more do you want from the man? Uh, it's like he's going all in with like love and emotion, being a parent, the experience of that with the guilt and everything. Yeah, Nolan said in the book is that uh, I can consider myself incredibly lucky to be able to do this job. But there is a lot of guilt involved in doing that. A lot of guilt. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, he puts that feeling right into the script with some dialogue between uh, Donald, Cooper's father-in-law, played by John Lithgow, who's awesome in the relatively brief amount of screen time he has. I love him uh, in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like Nolan's almost having the conversation with himself. So Donald says, this before Cooper's about to go off on, on this mission, this world was never enough for you, was it, Coop? And Cooper says, I'm not going to lie to you, Donald. Heading out there is what I feel born to do and excites me. That doesn't make it wrong. And Don replies that it might. Don't trust the right thing done for the wrong reason. And the why of a thing, that's the foundation. So I definitely feel some of that guilt on a much smaller level. You know, like the job I have now, what I do, my work in tech. um, I am so so happy i changed careers and it's incredibly fulfilling and i love the work i do i never imagined i could have a job that i love as much as this but for me like even going into the office from time to time i work from home mostly but i do go into the office from time to time now 
And even when I have to do that relatively infrequently, my son kind of asks why and doesn't particularly like it, but do sometimes a little <laughs> bit of prep saying, I'm going to the office. This is when I'll be back. Things like this. Yeah. Yeah. But I still feel that. Yeah. I still feel that bit of guilt for going off and sometimes even just like, hmm, wish I didn't have to go on that small scale. So again, another uh, thing that makes you think of like how much better that this is than what I had to deal with with my dad's work when I was growing up. But uh, it's just another deeply intrinsic pull of the film again. So uh, just again, another thing that's just, it's, I mean, it's a relatable thing too. He's like, Christopher Nolan's not the only person who travels for his work. Our dads weren't, I'm not like just going into the office every day and still feeling it a little bit. It's a pretty universal experience. So like, I don't understand why it's like you, I mean, if, if people want to call us the outlier shirt, sure. like people use this with a stick to beat them with, but uh, no emotion, but there's plenty of great emotional work here. There's, there's some good comedy. I mean, like the banter between Tars and Cooper, you know, like what's your, what's your humor setting? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah oh, taking down a notch. Okay. Yeah, you want to yeah. go for sixty-five? <laughs> um, so, I just yeah. What what more? What more can the Nolans do here? Uh, <laughs> come on, please, people. Yeah, the um, there was another quote that I saw. What was it? Uh, we can get kind of in this with the score discussion when we talk about this later. But the the beginning of the whole thing started with. Nolan wanting to get back to the basics and the thesis of the the whole story instead of trying to come back to it later in the edit to make sure everything cohered. So he just hands Hans Zimmer the ghost story bit on a piece of paper and says, hey, can you make some theme of music for this? And this is what we're going to use as our launching pad for the whole movie. Right. And he's like, yeah, sure, I can figure that out. And he does this really moving piece and then nolan finally tells him what the movie's actually going to be about and it's going to be about outer space and blight and apocalyptic post-apocalyptic stuff and wormholes and all this stuff and hans zimmer is like well i just wrote this really personal piece of music for you you sure you want to go with that and he's like yeah absolutely <laughs> so, like and then the other movie now yeah yeah the other the quote that tom shown says is it's maximalist film in minimalist mode where you never lose sight of the agrarian roots of the the story at the beginning and you you never lose sight of the the humanity at the center of the story but then you've also got like the organ just plowing through you whenever there's action scenes and you've got yeah. vast swaths of space and you've got waves that are hundreds of feet high going to crush you and everything. And so like once the, the action scenes die down and you get to the, the emotional parts of it, it, it's really just a small scale human drama about what we've got to do to survive and what we've got to do to save each other. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, like just, also very directly mentioned talking about love. There's a whole core monologue in the middle of the movie where they're trying to decide where to go, whether Dr. Man's planet or Edmund's planet and, and Hathaway's character is making the argument. Number one, she, she starts making an argument for Edmund's planet based on the cool logical reasons saying that Dr. Man's planet is too close to the black hole 
there's, you know, organics and pieces of stuff for life are there. Yes. But the first planet was like that too, but they're both too close to the black hole and they prevent the accidents necessary for life forming from happening. So this other planet is kind of further afield from that. And all the data is really promising. It's more likely that things are happening there. And then Cooper calls around and says, but you're in love with Edmonds, aren't you? And she's like, yes, I am excited to see him again, possibly. But also maybe we need to start <laughs> thinking about this in the strictly most logical terms, too. And she goes on her monologue saying, love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. Why shouldn't it mean something? And then Coop says, it means social utility, child rearing, social bonding. And she cuts back. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? And goes on to say, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't yet understand it. And so if you if you want to talk mm-hmm. about a cold, calculating, emotionless person, I don't know how much more, uh, if you want to call it schmaltzy, you want to get. But come on, we're going there. Uh, to be fair, I think we can perceive all kinds of emotions across time and space. But still, the point remains... Oh. <laughs> But that's the type of grand monologue that would accompany something that, you know, also deals with black holes and wormholes and planets that have minutes that equal the years back on. But, you know, like it's it's all. Oh, yeah. Big. Like, you, I feel like you couldn't have just little emotions with something like this. Yeah. I mean, you like you mentioned with that great line from Tom Schoen, like a, a maximalist movie. Uh, made in the minimalist mode you, like you were going big on on the imagery on the emotions on the on the feels but it's done with small moves as we pull that phrase from contact and also actually speaking of contact and that scene like that's kind of like the absolute weight of that scene in interstellar is kind of like the fulcrum on which everything turns because cooper's in a spot where he's mistrusting brand's judgment because she made a mistake that cost them some of the time on the first planet and so we've got a situation of kind of like contact where it's like, oh, hey, the men aren't listening to the smarter, very capable woman. So let's maybe not yeah. do that. OK, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but maybe the last thing I'll have to say about kind of the emotion part of this is that Nolan had a comment to Tom Schoen where he claims he even had to like tamp down the emotion in some places for this. He was talking about filming the scene where Cooper's catching up on all the 20 years worth of messages. And how intense that some of the actors can get and what the job of the director is in that place. And he said, quote, there's often a point where they're so raw and so open, speaking about the actors, that you actually disconnect from them because it's too overwhelming. It's too much and you feel that you're intruding. It's almost like turning sound up too loud and it starts to distort. And so part of what you do as a director is to gauge when you're really in sync with the audience. So the man had to like, Tell McConaughey to like, don't go too intense, dial it back. So again, come on, people, what more can this man do to convince you that he is not just a robot? He, he can't understand emotions. He's not just a copy of Tars, emotional beings. But hmm. yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah, and it sets us up to care so much, too, about this world. Uh both emotionally and intellectually talking about the minimalist stuff. The book makes a great point that at the beginning of this movie, it is a post-apocalyptic type movie where it's not quite an apocalyptic event, but the food resources are dying and people are just trying to survive based off of that. But there is no 
frantic news coverage events. There's no news clips of anchors uh, just out doing a stand-up shot for a package. And then uh, they see a dust storm hit and it's like, oh, what's going on? Like there's no frantic thing like that. Like you would see with like a 28 days later or something where a disease takes over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just like little subtle layers and little notes throughout the first hour of the movie where you realize just the the breadth of everything that's going on. Like there's conspiracy theories that we never went to the moon because we want to train our kids that wanting to leave the planet is foolish and you need to start saving your resources here and looking for food here and we shouldn't be training our kids to want to leave the planet uh so the yeah. they literally force nasa underground yeah um or the the bits about you know coop has that monologue in the parent teacher conference about well if we would have had money for an mri machine maybe the doctor would have found my wife's tumor before she died instead mm-hmm. of in an autopsy and the the little bits and pieces and the documentary footage at the beginning and I completely forgot that they got stuff from Ken Burns for this because as I watched yeah. it, one of the first notes I took was this feels like a Ken Burns documentary. And then I was like, oh, there yeah, he gave them he <laughs> gave them outtakes from the dust yeah. bowl and just those subtle little moments of, oh, yeah, we had to turn the bowls upside down, which feels real because they are real because those people that are speaking at the beginning are real people mm-hmm. that we they got from that documentary. But it it doesn't do what a lot of sci-fi speculative fiction does where it throws a bunch of jargon at you right out the gate and kind of gives you the lay of the land. It sets it very much in a, like this could take place in 2014. It could take place in 2067 when it actually takes place because mm-hmm. the technology is mostly the same. They use a lot of analog stuff. Uh, a lot of the car models pretty much are what they would have had to have used if they kept, you know, the lifestyle the same that they do right now. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it, it feels more timeless that way, I think, which works in its favor because you're not worried about how the world works and like how the technology and the futuristic society of everything works. You're way more keyed into this is this family. They live on this farm. The mom is dead. The dad's a pilot. He's got two kids. He's living with his father-in-law. Here's where their story begins. Boom. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. And one note I had on some of the, other parts that like just revealed about the, the world they're living in. There's like, a, there's a really, really dark story in there somewhere because Coop has a passing line about, I heard you got shut down about NASA for refusing to drop bombs from the stratosphere onto starving people. And it's like, well, yeah, oh, we were, yeah. uh, we were at this point. And I think, uh, yeah. Donald says something like, you know, he makes a passing reference talking about 6 billion people back when I was growing up. Imagine that. Donald's a millennial in this movie, and it makes me really sad, just so depressed. But, um, <laughs> That's what he becomes, yeah. Yeah, but he's like, six billion people, imagine that. And you're trying to wonder, wait a minute, how many people are actually left on Earth now? Right. With this, how many people will die during this famine, this food apocalypse? So, yeah. So and Interestingly, the, the cause of the cordyceps virus in Last of Us is also food-related. They confirmed when the show came out that it had to deal with some infection getting in flour. And then mm. the people, you know, you make a lot of your base food products with flour and then that mm-hmm. got in the food supply and then that just spread and metastasized. So very feasible and scary cause for everything that's going on in this world. I do remember a little bit of the discourse about this movie when it came out was some 
ridiculous complaints about oh, uh, global warming, the liberal agenda being pushed on us or whatever about this and blah, blah, blah. But once I finally saw the movie for the first time, I was like, it's just a plot device. It's yeah. not saying it's just being used as a way to push people off the planet. Like there's it's not even like talked about where this thing came from or what happened. It just it's a it was a crop disease that right ran, like absolutely wild it thrives off of nitrogen as they say in the movie at one point and most of the air on earth is in fact nitrogen so it's not any kind of political thing at all it is purely about the plot of it you know just like you would expect with a nolan plot here but like the level of mewling and kind of whining about it <laughs> that i heard surrounding this film's release was just i mean I guess it did what it design was designed to do from some of those quarters. It got me to be like, oh, what? Like, no one's going activist on us. It, it definitely was not the case. No, so. which is, I don't know. That's kind of funny because I think this is, I mean, he said he's not particularly religious in a sense, but I do think this is his most religious film. He talks about in the book using the pipe organ for the score, and he told Zimmer, I don't want it to feel like, religion or like god but i want it to feel awe i want the viewer to feel awestruck whenever this happens religiosity as a way to, yes yeah, as, religion. A, as a callback to his days where he had to go to chapel for school and the first thing he would hear when he walked in was the blaring organ which never failed to just elicit that sense of awe yes. and, and, yeah um, let's talk about the organ and, yeah and the score since we're here now and i mean yeah. that was a very much another deep elemental thing for me too uh, because I grew up going to a private school where every week we'd have chapel midweek and it was, it didn't have a, a full on, like completely analog organ with the massive pipes in the church, but still had the electronic organ that was capable of producing that huge sound. And that is something that deeply impacted me. And like, look, I love the organ. Okay. I always loved the sound of it. I loved how you could just feel it inside you with all the deep notes and, you know, all the organ music. I think some of Bach's fugues that he wrote. And, you know, we had so, some talented music directors at the church who could play that stuff. It was so cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Another treasured piece of my Christianity past. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that the organ is here front and center in this movie i absolutely love it like anywhere i'd go to travel if it's say in europe at some of those massive cathedrals i'm always got to go in there and hope to hear like the organ because it's it's just so cool uh, the only issue or the only thing i had to say about when the book brought up talking about the organ nolan says he asked if zimmer wanted to do a pipe organ and nolan says that zimmer replied that he never worked with the organ on other film scores so he was a bit daunted and i was like hold on hold on does anyone remember Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest? Because there's an organ <laughs> front and center in that movie with That's the Davy Jones theme. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I guess I guess it was a synthesized organ and not like the real thing. Maybe that's what he was talking the about. Analog pipe organ, yeah. But still, Dead Man's Chest, come on. The classic <laughs> classic score for Dead Man's Chest. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the church we go to here has a an like an old analog pipe organ and there's not a lot of people that know how to play it. And every time there's someone that comes in there and can actually play it, it's just, 
I love it so much. It feels so cool. Um, it's an amazing good, thing. Yeah, good mindset. Um, I have another experience with this score. So I said I downloaded it right after seeing it for the first time. A couple months later, I was out covering a high school football game. Uh, I think it was like one of the higher UIL games. So they weren't playing in a high school. They were at Tarleton State. And I was on my way home. Um, I had just sent off my copy and I was driving back, probably going to go like get some late night food and head home. But there was this thunderstorm and lightning storm that was happening on the way back home. And so I was listening to this soundtrack as that was happening and just the combined visuals and the sounds of thunder and lightning all around me with organ blaring and the other stuff going on. Yeah. Hearing first day dark or day one dark, excuse me, while all of that was going on around me was like, I don't know if I want to call it a religious experience, but it was like one of the coolest musical experiences I've ever had, at least driving in the car. And I had no one to share it with because I was all alone driving back to my house. Oh, man. It's like, this is amazing. Well, it uh, seems appropriate, though, for being out in the vast loneliness of something. Yeah, yeah. Um, out in the North Texas country. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's hands down my favorite Nolan Zimmer collaboration score. I don't know. It gets that same sense of seeing it for the first time for me every time in terms of awe. Right. And like, even just thinking of a couple of the tracks for me, like stay, I can just, oh, I God. hear the first few notes yeah. of it anytime it comes up uh-huh. and I'm already trying to like, yeah. you know, choke back some emotions uh-huh. and just something that that I can just flip that switch like that is something special. And it does that just when you're listening to it, at least for me and in the movie, it just, it brings so much and just some of the, the cool little bits of how they recorded it by uh, like, I think I've mentioned this on the very first episode, but no one talked about hearing the echo of the music ringing out when it stops. And then we use that to create a sense of space, even though it's created by the confinement of being played in the cathedral, you hear the echoes, but you're actually like closed in. And how Hans Zimmer placed the microphones like away from a certain amount of feet away from the organ. And he asked the choir to turn away from the microphones to make the acoustics sound even more alien. uh, Because it's the the farther you get from Earth, the the weirder we're going to get. And just like, oh, man, like this is so cool how they did that. And like you really feel that all the work comes through. And it's it gets uh, integrated so perfectly. So, yeah, love this music. the The process of how they did the music first, or at least the the themes first, um, and then made the movie. I think you can really hear how that influenced the approach, and. They just nailed it. They they hit a freaking home run. So, yeah, this score is incredible. But if we're talking about music, it's not very far removed from the sound. So we want to, <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to offer another another steaming hot take on this. But watching it, this may be the TV that I watched it on, which is not great for 
loud sound going directly into softer sound, like the mixing on the speakers is not great because it's just the whatever speaker came with it. I did have to turn it down during the big organ scenes a little bit and then kind of turn it back up during the dialogue scenes. But within those scenes, I had no problem understanding what people were saying. So I think the the inherent home video DVD mix is fine. And I also didn't really have an issue with it in the theaters. I had more of an issue hearing Tenet in theaters. Uh, so again, we've talked about that earlier. I'll, it'll be nice to revisit that and see what that's like now. But I didn't really have a problem with it. <laughs> Same. Because I'm going to come around and say it. The sound mix in this movie is amazing. No issues with it at all. And I'm going to say it's definitely your TV because any speakers that come with the modern TV are too thin to do anything, really. So that's not, right. yeah. that's nothing to judge anything on. Um, and so me having seen it in an IMAX theater together, and then I had watched it again with my headphones, noise-canceling headphones, just piping it right into my ears. No issues at all. You know, this this thing did get nominated for score, sound mixing, and sound editing at the Oscars. So you got professionals in the field having no issue with this either. Like, totally justified. I, the only trouble I had hearing anything in the IMAX showing was, like, during scenes that were already very loud, like some really intense scenes with the spaceship, maybe, and things are going crazy. But like, it's not something you'd really expect to hear anybody talking or disseminating super important plot details. <laughs> um, so it wasn't really problematic. And I think this is a good time to bring up a Hollywood Reporter interview that no one did at the time. The movie came out and there was a lot of hullabaloo about the sound mix found this link through the Wikipedia article from Interstellar and he was talking about it. Uh, so I can certainly see Nolan's point. He talks in it about like the mix being very different for a Hollywood movie. You know, not necessarily blaming audiences, but if you get something so different from what you're used to seeing in the movies you typically go see, people are probably going to notice that and they're either going to love it or hate it. And so Nolan talks in this interview about he decided to use dialogue as a sound effect or at, particular, mm -hmm. yeah. at least yeah. at particular moments. So sometimes he says it's mixed slightly underneath the other sound effects or in the other sound effects to emphasize how loud the surrounding noise is. It's not that nobody has ever done these things before, but it's a little unconventional for a Hollywood movie. So going back to what I was talking about when we first brought this up, talking about the Dark Knight Rises, when I said you kind of Maybe I'll be able to hear the dialogue um, for this. I'll hold my hands up and say I maybe misunderstood kind of the position that I'd seen elsewhere going into that where people were saying, you know, like it's all mixed together. It's, you know, nothing's more important than the other thing. So seeing it laid out like that makes more sense because I don't feel like any critical storytelling info was withheld by the sound mix during Interstellar. I think that's a very interesting and valid approach to a mix. And I don't mind it because if, as long as you're not up obfuscating anything that the audience does need to stay on side and play fair, there's a difference between like, I couldn't hear any dialogue at all. And, oh, I couldn't hear every single syllable that everyone said. And I think the latter case was definitely my experience watching it in the theater. And honestly, layering some dialogue under other effects makes perfect sense because that's what happens sometimes in real life. You'll be in a loud situation. You're trying to talk and your voice isn't going to go over that. Like that's real. That's what happens. 
So as long as you're not keeping back any key pieces of info and you want to do that to try and keep that truthfulness to what things might sound like, I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Yeah, and it also works just because obviously you couldn't do this, watch this movie without any sound or effects at all. There's a lot of exposition and a lot of heavy dialogue stuff. But it is such a visual movie where if you didn't have something like the score, really, I mean, that would greatly take away from your experience of it since the music is such a big part. But there's a lot to chew on visually, especially in the beginning, to where the the sound mix just highlights it, really, I think. But he did make a point to say in the Nolan variations that he wanted to make the beginning very almost like a tone poem of what it would be like in the world uh, after yeah. the light happened. So just very visual focused and very um, images, but the, yeah, the sound stuff too. Like, I, <laughs> like it's almost like it, like, I mean, did you ever watch uh parenthood, the TV show? Uh, no, I did not. There's a lot of family arguing and a lot of family dialogue just overlapping left and right with each other. And there's no way you could possibly catch all of it, but you get the the tone and you get the idea of it. It's this 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 family is comfortable enough with each other to argue and bicker with each other about everything and anything. And some of the dialogue will get lost in the shuffle, but you get the point of the whole thing, right? Yeah, so I think that's kind of the same thing here. Like you're yeah, like especially the scene where uh uh, where Merce talking to Brand in the hospital where that dialogue's really kind of low. Yeah. Uh, and people are saying they can't hear it. Well, and Nolan was saying, well, that's kind of how it is when you're in those situations. <laughs> or you're, you know, from the perspective of Murph, you don't really want to hear what they have to say because you're not processing or you don't mm-hmm. want to process that they're about to die. So you're just going to tune it out. So it's more of a character decision as well. Yeah. And, and as an example of like not letting it obfuscate information at the very least you can get here the i lied i lied about yeah. it all yeah um so like you get that and then you also get that that experience of murph having to try to come to terms with this entire thing that's not just going to shatter her world but might be coming to grips with oh everyone on earth is gonna die holy shit so like and then the only trouble spots I really noticed when I was looking out for it, both in IMAX and just viewing at home, is like when it was an obviously loud scene and say they're at the end where they're trying to do the slingshot maneuver around the black hole and things are very loud and they're in Hathaway and uh, McConaughey's characters are talking to each other. But that makes sense. <laughs> and then when I was watching at home, the only other thing that I noticed was when Murph comes out of the house after she figures it all out, she has the watch. The sound very clearly layered under the outdoor noises and the sound of like the truck pulling up and maybe the wind blowing um, because Murph's voice was just a little bit kind of like dropped a bit, but you can tell at that point you can tell, okay, she's figured it out and you can, you can still hear her say to Tom, like, no dad figured it out. He's here for us. And he's helped us. Like we're going to be fine. But even then, it wasn't too big. Maybe a small trouble spot, but really not that big a deal. So we're just here clearing out all the myths. We're busting it all. We're just, you know, we're taking a hammer to all these, all these Nolan myths on this episode. And we're saying, no, this this stops now for all the people who are going to actually care. He's, He's emotional. He has good sound mixing. 
He cares about his characters. This is where the, the scales will fall from everybody's eyes and realize this is what we've been building to the whole time. It's just been a cover. <laughs> a veneer of criticism when actually. <laughs> I will say uh, on that for everyone who says that, you know, oh, this is this is too on the nose. This is too. uh, There's no subtext here, which, yes, especially for the ending, which I like movies that do that. uh, Your mileage may vary, but I do think it's interesting that the villain, if you can even call it a true villain of the whole thing, is Dr. Man. So man will man is our own own villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also just realized this tonight, actually, as we were recording, is that in the book, uh, Nolan said that he wanted his protagonist to be someone that, you know, a good audience surrogate, someone that the audience can relate to. So he wanted him to be this everyman person. He didn't want him to be this crazy, super, I mean, Coop is smart, but like not some super crazy genius person who is right. devoid of humanity. He wanted him to be an everyman. And his name is Joseph Cooper. So I can't help but think that that's a take on just Campbell. He of the author of the man of a thousand faces, hero's journey template, analyzing all of the myths and legends and every story that we've been telling for humanity since sure. we tell stories. And I also um, thought about Joseph from Genesis leading uh, uh, yeah. Egypt. Yes. Also during this recording, just yeah, if we want to try to stretch as many, threads on on faith and religion here to to tie to the contact episode but yes yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and there's yeah the faith thing too where he he mentions that too when he talks about you know he's like i don't get why people say i'm not emotional when this is really like one of the most emotional things i've done and then he says with people who have an issue with the ending scene and the logic of, well, who are the five dimensional beings that could possibly have thought to do all this? And, you know, that's all a little bit too tidy. And it's the, the he said, jumping into black holes is the ultimate act of faith. Yeah. And so it rectifies every it's the perfect, you know, science and faith combining into one. Like, it's I feel like it works with contact really well in that mm-hmm. way where the ending to contact is very much like the ending of this movie. Yeah, yeah. And also on that with um yeah, people complaining about the ending. First great disclaimer of sorts from Nolan, what he told Tom Schoen, quote, if I'm having to make an argument for why something works, then clearly for you something didn't. So <laughs> we yeah. can we can expound on what we see as the virtues of this all day long. But I mean if something really didn't work for somebody, you know what? Yeah, that's okay. But at some point I see some, I saw, you know, one review of this complaining about, okay, when they're about to go into the black hole, Romilly comes up and he's having to explain what a wormhole is uh, with the paper and pen to Cooper. And like, what the hell is this? How can this guy even be flying this mission if he doesn't know? Like, first, it's a movie. Cooper is our like POV for the film. Right. Do you just want to not explain anything at all? Complete verisimilitude of how this would be? Okay, then a lot of people are going to be lost. And then you get the problem of, well, you know, what's going on with any of these movies? Blah, blah, blah. So just like, again, what do you want? And also just in movies in general, when it's people are talking about, (laughs) Nolan had a quote for this too, talking about this. He talks about when he was talking to a studio executive about Memento. 
this executive said you can talking about like narrative leaps you can ask people to make in the first third of the movie, but not in the last third. And then no mm, one says yeah, yeah. when people start talking about what they call plot holes, they're not necessarily taking into account how storytelling works, the rhythm of it. So I think that applies in like this context I just presented. It's it's a sci-fi movie. Like you need to explain on some level how some things work. Also, you need to let your protagonist get some kind of context for things. I mean, come on, let's just stop it. I think we touched on this maybe in in one of the early episodes, but like all the plot holes, all the gotchas, all the whatever, all the the cinema sins. Like, yeah, like like if you're watching movies hoping everything's going to be 100% like real life and you can't enjoy it, like you have no suspension of disbelief. What are you even doing watching narrative feature films? Yeah, and he said, too, in the book where he was like, the genres that I work in invite more scrutiny because of that. But if at the end of the day, if you don't want to be entertained and you're just going to nitpick, then whatever, fine. Yeah. The other complaint that, do you remember this when it came out? People were mad that there were no actual aliens behind any of it. No, I don't really remember that just since I didn't see it right when it came out. But I got that sense from feeling Tom Schoen's kind of attitude. <laughs> I remember people, yeah, people were mad about, well, it's a space movie and why wouldn't it's all about space exploration and why wouldn't it, you know, be about him finding aliens or whatever when that's not the one that's not the point of the movie because the point of the movie is the quote aliens, five dimensional beings, whatever. We don't know who those people are to have placed the Tesseract back to get coop to where he needs to go but really you could read it as the aliens it's just it's us in the future which coop um, speculates but, yes yeah and because he yeah at the very beginning when he says you know oh, maybe it's someone's ghost maybe it's alien and then later when he talks about time travel like could we theoretically be hearing something from ourselves later yeah and they're like and that's treated immediately as a serious proposition and they're like oh yeah well maybe anything's possible you know um, yeah, I mean, so, and, and, and that's technically just Cooper's hypothesis too. When he's in the test rack, when Tars is like, "How do you know?" Like he's like, "Well, it's, it's us. It's humans. We're saving ourselves." And the audience takes that, pulls sunglasses off on faith, and like it's another instance of Nolan just letting the audiences, <laughs> and in this case, the characters' minds do the work for him because it's not. It's it's more just the one character's speculation. It doesn't really say who it is necessarily. And Nolan compared it to the the monoliths in 2001, A Space mm-hmm. Odyssey, yeah. where Kubrick made it um, like this machinery representation of it. And and he says, in my case, I just made it an emotional concept. You know, it's love. Yeah. And when he explained like that, too, it, it made sense to me. I mean, I was already on board by this time with everything. But, yeah. I mean, it makes sense if you want to do it that way. And honestly, with what it does with the film, it, it stretches these fifth dimension beings evolution out over millions of years. So if it is humans say, or whoever it is to get to this point to where they can move between or across space and time and gravity. Well, if you're talking about like a closed loop time travel narrative, then it's kind of like when you do things like that, what happened always happened. So it always happened right. that this wormhole showed up at this time. It always happened that, Coop was the one who was the ghost and it always happened that they figure out how to put the Tesseract there so from that perspective if you are 
some beings that evolved to move across time, then if you remember things, how things went, you will put the thing you need to put there back when you need to put it there. You're not going to put mm-hmm. it in the dark ages when no one even conceive of what space even is or understands it fully. So you're going to put it at the right time. Anyway, it, for me, it makes sense. I don't know if I'm, if some people are going to think I'm stretching too far, but closed loop time travel narratives are pretty good about that. It's like what happened, happened. It, and it always happens. You know, me trying to shoehorn more lost into this podcast. Um, <laughs> but it also happens in Tenet as well. Um, like, yeah, I didn't really yeah. have any other, any concerns that the protagonist wasn't going to succeed if, because if the bomb had gone off in that, there would be no past that the future people wanted to change. So it's another closed loop. Exactly. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, I don't know if I'd say airtight necessarily, because there's plenty of stuff in this movie open to interpretation, but from that regard, yeah. it kind of is. Yeah. And it, it ultimately comes down really to the emotional core of the movie is just that we're going to which is also what contact says at the end of the movie too, is that, you know, if there's nothing else out here in contact's case or in interstellar's case, whatever beings are out there, whatever happens on earth, whatever planets we find out in the solar system, regardless of if we find nothing, we still have to take care of what we've got and the people that we have. And so really this comes down on the more humanist side of like, if each other is all we have, then we might as well, you know, work towards a better future for everything. Um, Right. But the, yeah, (laughs) the time travel thing, it's funny because as watching this again, I was like, this is probably maybe his most linear movie in terms of the way that it's edited and how it just goes straight forward. But even then you still have that loop with the, it loops back to the documentary footage at the end. And then it loops back to, watching it a second time, third time, you realize that all the pieces fall into place where Coop had to have done what he had to have did what he did in order to move the plot forward. Like even to the point where he's trying in vain to get his past self to stay, even though he knows that he's not going to, because if he doesn't stay, then none of this is going to happen. So, yeah. yeah. And even in that moment, it's just an emotional reaction to be like, no, don't go before he really figures out, fully what the like, thing no, is so, i have to go yeah like who among us wouldn't try to do that yeah know, in, in the moment i mean just the way it's built for me i think it's good i think it works if it doesn't work for other people then well there's no amount of pontificating that's going to resolve that for people so uh, interesting thing one of the things you just said about the the beginning and the ending it's i think it is kind of curious and sneaky how the first line and the last line of the film is both Murph and it's old Murph Ellen Burstyn uh, with her faux interview looped in with the real footage of the Dust Bowl people so she's the first line and then she also narrates over the ending so that's pretty cool nice little closed loop for the narrative of the film very nice I didn't Um, notice that yeah Yeah, cool Yeah, yeah I was noticed it while I was taking us I was like oh yeah huh. and cool and also in the script it's uh, with those opening lines it says elderly female voice and then the very next scene when young Merce first lines it just says young female voice before we realize who it is talking to Cooper so elderly female voice straight to young female voice They're, these guys are even doing this shit in their scripts but we don't <laughs> even know about it you know so <laughs> purest purest Nolan with these two guys mm-hmm. so 
I guess the only other note I'd have about um, with the, the the watching experience and the discourse on the ending and stuff. I talked with the Dark Knight Rises, at least on my Letterboxd review of it, how it felt like some of the the tricks, if you will, had gotten a little stale, like something, a magic act we'd seen multiple times. And like we still appreciate it, but we kind of are wise to it now. And it's kind of leaving us hoping for something new. And this movie, I feel like, is definitely maybe a soft reset for Nolan's filmmaking because Shone's line about the ending of Interstellar was after making movies that were kind of asking people to figure it out and think a lot, Nolan was like in the curious position of asking his audiences to think a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was saying, you know, maybe Interstellar had to be a messier film for Nolan to break free of some of this stuff. You know, he's been making the watch face transparent. So maybe the watch face had to shatter for this. Uh, We definitely don't get Tenet without Interstellar. (laughs) Uh, And this definitely begins the era of don't understand it, feel it. As well as, I think, an even stronger obsession with time and the, this film going onward because you get interstellar with all the time stuff we just talked about. Dunkirk with, you have the watch ticking like the whole time mm-hmm. on the soundtrack. Three timelines. With yeah. three timelines, bringing them together. At the very least, if you don't think that works or if it's a gimmick, like, well, it's at least trying to do something new with a, a movie like that, a historical film. You know, so at least trying to do something new even if you don't think it works and we can talk about that when we get there um tenet it's tenet (laughs) (laughs) and then oppenheimer uh, at least with what we have from the trailers some stuff with time with the countdown and we've been wondering how that might play into it so extra extra time sensitivity here with nolan's last four now with when oppenheimer's released so i just uh very interesting to kind of see what he's turned to ever since the dark Knight rises and gotten a bit, I don't know if you'd say looser, but not being as concerned with everything being completely lockstep and every gear fits together and trying to go for a different tack in some regards, but probably something to focus on as we, as we move forward. But that's what I, I feel kind of feel like this is here. Yeah, definitely. Other odds and ends from me. Uh, I like that the the NASA facility that they have is itself a ship, as a centrifuge, and the way that oh, that yeah. looks and yeah. that it's built are just highlights. Nolan's fascination with fun architecture in his movies, mm-hmm. um, and also one of those scenes in that facility I thought was funny. Uh, how you know how in like future space movies sometimes there's like coffee on the space deck or whatever like implying that even in the future people got to have their coffee right Uh, the mall like the 90s mall styrofoam cups is what they're drinking whatever murph has a drink of in one of the scenes where she's talking to brand so those cups are going to outlive us all oh you're right (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and then i don't know how different this played to you after going through covid but one of the things I texted you during this watch was when they were going through the dust storm. Yeah. And McConaughey was like, all right, gang, mask up. Let's go. And I was like, what did what did he know? And when did he know it? And <laughs> yeah. No, um, I definitely took note that that line stood out very, very prominently. Yeah. And then everybody awesome. putting the masks on. I'm like, I know what those are now. Very oh, much. 
Yeah. Just one, you know, just the, oh, they got to do that to not get dust in their face. Uh, when I watched the first time and now I was like, oh man, wonder if that was ever like a, I mean, I guess probably wasn't a big deal because you could actually see the dust coming into your body. Uh, yes. Anyway. <laughs> uh, and then on the COVID thing too, the, the line about how are you going to do this with man? You know, these are innocent people that are going to die. And then knowing the knowledge of the, the equation and trying to evacuate everybody and like that just resonated too with the weight that we have to to do right by other people um other one that we got oh fun fact about all of the the books in the tesseract at the end of Murph's library some of the books uh that were pushed over uh include uh, the big nowhere by james elroy uh wrinkle in time Madeline Langle, uh, some works of Conan Doyle, uh, and then you got Charlotte's Web and Winter's Tale, which all have to do with either someone leaving and coming back or some sort of, um, uh, like wrinkle in time, interdimensional travel, Conan Doyle, some mysteries, uh, stuff like that, uh, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I thought it was pretty cool that, they actually planted all that corn. Oh yeah, uh, and they used it for. I think they gave the crops to some people that actually needed it for everything. So all that corn at the beginning is real. Yep, yep. They planted the big old field and drove the truck through it. <laughs> and, that, um, and that reminded me of the another great corn Michael Caine performance from Secondhand Lions where they get uh oh my god yeah where they get the they get the fake seeds and they thought they were gonna be raising a full garden of stuff and then it's just corn and then Robert Duvall turns to Michael Caine and just like corn corn nothing but corn <laughs> oh man I haven't thought about that movie for a while but I saw that in the theater and uh same talk yeah. about emotional experiences that film uh really did a number on my mom her thinking about her her dad and uncle but Oh, that was a damn. <laughs> we're gonna roll up totally off track here, but that was a, yeah. that was a pretty charming movie. Pretty, pretty. That's good. a wonderful movie. Go watch yeah. that if you guys haven't watched that. Secondhand Lions. Secondhand probably, Lions. Probably streaming somewhere. Yeah, how they leave everything to the kid. But that, that was their will, right? The kid gets it all. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> go watch it. But I'm gonna ruin the ending. Um, back to Interstellar. Some of the. <laughs> I'm just going to drag a rake over the remainder of my notes, just go straight down it. Um, maybe one of the coolest moments I noticed and that really like extra smacked me in the feels was when Cooper is going to go off to find whatever the coordinates are early in the movie, it, it turns out to be NASA. He says Murph has to stay at the house and he's driving off and reaches for some blankets or a jacket over in the passenger side of the truck and he pulls it up and Murph's there hiding and startles him. So then when he's driving away after he's said goodbye to go on the mission, he has some stuff on that same side of the car and then he, his eyes are welling up and he pulls it back this time, half expecting it, hoping that Murph somehow hid in there with him and she's not there. And just what an absolute gut punch, which I guess I I did want to, briefly touch on or quickly uh we're running out of time somewhat touch on that like the pure imagery and the for me the imax experience of this it was almost in some places like a 4d movie the sensory experience 
of that. And I'll just use the, the launch as an example. The transition from that goodbye and Coop driving away and into the launch. For me, that might be the most visceral, brilliantly edited, overall best sequence in any Nolan movie, period. Let's let's start the, the nominations now. And it took that concept of, in the book they were talking about, when Jonah Nolan was learning about physics and relativity for this movie and writing this, the script, learning all the Einstein's examples for relativity, two people parting. Well, it really took the concept of that and just cranked the dial all the way up. But watching that scene in IMAX as the music is swelling, the sound of the rocket about to take off, it was it was a physical experience. I no one talked about taking all the low ends off of the sound mix for this to the score. And he was not kidding. I've like I've been to the Mars like mission simulator at Epcot. I don't know if they still have it there. It's been a decade and a half. But they have yeah, it there they one do. time. They do. Okay. Yeah. I've been on that thing. And the launch sequence in this movie felt way more like being a rocket than on that. Like at least what I imagine it could be. Because the sound was rattling my seat in the theater and it did it then. And it did it a couple other times in the movie to where it turned it into just a whole other, you know, dimension dimensional experience entirely, completely unbelievable. And you, you know, one mentioned that in the book saying it's, um, there's a wonderful feeling of physicality to sound that on interstellar, we push further than I think anyone ever has. And I can confirm that. They took all the controls off the sub frequencies. Yeah. And he said, uh, if you see it particularly in an IMAX theater projected, it's really pretty remarkable. Yes, yes, and yes. I've never, ever, ever experienced anything like that. And no one talked about it being interstellar, being an experiential film. And yes, <laughs> it, it totally is. So that's the thing that's going to stick with me, I think, the most about watching it in IMAX is just how my seat really rattled around during that sequence and made it more powerful than I've ever <laughs> seen and probably ever will. And the other shot that essentially rewired my brain this time was when they're flying past Saturn and all you see filling the screen is just like a a relatively small piece of the planet Saturn. And then the endurance, the ship is just flying past it. And it's literally just like a pixel on the screen and seeing that projected up on the IMAX screen. You know, I'd seen the shot before, of course, watching it on TV and it's just not the same. And it's completely unbelievable just how it did that. And then with the sound it had with it too, the, they juxtaposed some sound of a thunderstorm with the images of the ship flying past. And so that that shot and the launch, I think, really were just the those those experiences, those things that uh, no one was talking about editing the movie and saying how they were started out just doing it, just trim it, make it efficient and then realized, no, actually, we need more of this breathing room. We need to put these images and things in here. He talked about the documentary Koyana Skatsi. And how it's a it's just a kind of experimental documentary that apparently just has a lot of imagery 
to and it's a bit abstract to to make its point about things and uh, he really channeled that and it really works um <laughs> it just added layers and layers onto my experience of the movie and i'm always going to remember that it's just so good so good yeah another thing i want to shout out the female character representation the the outlier i suppose we get two strong female characters played you know across four different actors we got murph and amelia brand in here awesome so and one uh, of them even yeah. lives <laughs> yeah well, i mean technically i mean we've seen murph die on screen uh, that's true so yeah she's, so when the movie ends old, they're both yeah. alive so they're both alive that's but good. still yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But but do we Coop's ever wife see is definitely a, dead. Yeah. Do we ever see like even a picture of Coop's wife at all, or is it just straight from the outset like is she gone? I don't think there were any pictures. No. No. But hey, we've got our one Nolan film with some female characters leading the way, which is nice. This isn't uh, debunking any of the other things like we have been with the sound and the emotions, but mm. it's a it's a change of pace and it's good. <laughs> And the last thing, last two things I had on this were uh, Inception and Interstellar, two of the three Dead Wives trilogy movies I was talking about. I, I really feel like during the second half the mo- of the movie, I was getting some Inception vibes with how they were intercut because you have the time slowing and dilating and wondering how the time's mm-hmm. going yeah. in outer space with Coop and then cutting that with the scenes with adult Murph and the farmhouse. So I was just really feeling those vibes very strongly. And lastly, I think Nolan touched on talking to Tom Schoen about like Interstellar is a classic survival epic. And he talked a little bit about Darwin and Darwin's theories of, you know, we talked about survival of the fittest and Nolan comments that Darwin doesn't say that humans as a species are going to do what's in their best interests. It's talking about like the genes that get passed on are going to be sustained. So whatever it is, even if, Somehow it's weaker genes. That's what's going to be. And he says there isn't a collective consciousness. There isn't a collective purpose. It's a random round of mutations. So juxtapose that against the supposedly cold, logical characters. Almost you might call the supervillains in this with Michael Caine's Professor Brand saying lines like, we must think not as individuals, but as a species. And Matt Damon's Dr. Man kind of being on, seemingly on board with that. He says... Evolution has yet to transcend that simple barrier. We can care deeply selflessly for people we know, but our empathy rarely extends beyond our line of sight. But Nolan builds their um, builds like the fallacy of their supposed positions into their characters because Brand puts his own daughter on what he thinks is going to be the last flight out. So he he's supposedly saying he's doing this for all of humanity, but he's still saving his own family. And then Dr. Mann fakes the data for his planet, risking potentially the entire mission and all of humanity's survival just so he can save himself and keep trying to be the hero. So maybe that Darwin was really onto something, you know, who knows? uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so the very, very last thing, which is pretty much on that same point that uh, Haley brought up to me and I promised her I would bring this up on (laughs) the podcast because it was a great point and actually her line of thought for this made me think of the thing I just said uh, she was recontextualizing what Professor Brand did like he is all about the lying and lying and lying but 
it's another instance in this movie of a father just trying to save his daughter because he does get her out on that. So props to my wife, who is so much smarter than mm-hmm. I am. And uh, <laughs> I always always helps me see things in different ways. So I appreciate that. And do I think that's it for me? I think I can I can stop monologuing like a terrible <laughs> villain from The Incredibles. Um, Sly dog. Yeah, you got me monologuing. Come on, Jake. <laughs> this okay i did say this is the film that could bend the fabric of space time by getting two of the major studios to work together to finance a movie because you get, you get paramount and warner brothers not wanting to miss out on that sweet sweet nolan box office i think this is the only time he does paramount right i think so uh yeah i almost messed up i think last episode i said something about paramount i meant this i should have said uh universal or i corrected myself talking about oppenheimer so that was very much on the brain. But yeah, Paramount had the rights to the movie. They commissioned the script and with the uh, original idea of Linda Obst and Kip Thorne and Spielberg was originally attached to direct. And so Paramount had this going and then eventually uh, Spielberg went off to do other stuff. And Christopher Nolan came on since he knew about it, since Jonah was writing the script and came in and took on the project and we got what we got now. So it's pretty great. It's it's time for Letterbox. We've been we've been going a yes, long time. We're gonna have it. to probably do some magic in the editing suite here, but we've got to get those Letterbox reviews in. Yeah, I'll go first. I've got some pretty quick ones. Uh, this first one is from uh, user Hunter S. The at is at H Strawberry. <laughs> it says. Shout out to the woman sitting next to me who got audibly upset when Timothy Chalamet grew up to be Casey Affleck. She also happened to be my mom. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Very true. <laughs> a little, little baby Chalamet growing up to be Casey Affleck. Uh, and then the <laughs> other one I have is uh, David Ehrlich, uh, who is a film critic for, I believe he's at IndieWire right now. Uh, but the intro to his review that he wrote at the time of the movie coming out for Little White Lies, he says, there are no fucking aliens in Interstellar. That's not a spoiler. You'd sooner find an explicit sex scene in an Ozu film than an alien in one by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> And Ozu made a uh, Tokyo story, which is a really nice, like slice of life uh, film uh, <laughs> and some, a lot of great other movies too, but uh, for that reference, but yeah, that's a, he wrote a 2000 word review of that movie, uh, which I have not read yet, but based off of that lead, I would love to read now, but that also gets into my thought process on people need to calm down about there not being any actual visible aliens in this movie. <laughs> right. Right. Ah, uh, good choices. Yeah. We, we both could not just stick on just one for the letterbox reviews for this. So the ones I picked were a review from silent Don pretty prolific letterbox reviewer. I think you see their stuff pop up all the time. So at silent Don, uh, it's kind of lengthy. So I'm just going to pick out some of the, the choice lines in here. And so we'll start with interstellar shook my inner being to my core i'm not kidding exaggerating or being hyperbolic this film put me in a state that can only be described as transcendent religious even seeing this in 70 millimeter imax only magnified that transcendent experience and i wish i could describe my joy love adoration delight jubilation and utter bliss that interstellar brought to me and i can relate to that 
feeling. This is just coming out of that IMAX screening. I just, oh, man. And a couple of other lines from here. Really, it all comes down to if you respond to the film's emotional core. Sure, I understand some of the criticisms, but I didn't have any of those problems. While everyone is saying it's flawed in some way, I actually found it to be kind of flawless. The usual problems that I have with Nolan's work, such as exposition and pacing, are not found here. In many ways, this is Nolan as he's come full circle, coming back from a superhero trilogy to tell something original again. A good line about uh, Zimmer's work here is utterly holy and divine, continuing the religious through lines we're, we're maintaining here. And I feel that many wanted this to be a trippy sci-fi puzzle, and while those elements are certainly present, it's all about a relationship between father and daughter. No one takes the most ambitious genre, hard science fiction, and uses it to discuss why we love and how love will get us further than anything else in our lives. It's wholly satisfying, pure, sweet, and stupendously emotional. And then, as I stumbled out of the screening, I was in a daze. All I could think about was who I loved, why I love them, and how their love has changed me as a human being. Just uh, just some really fine fine words on this. And the entire review yeah, uh, might good. link it yeah. because it's so, it's yeah. so good. Um, <laughs> you know, like great translation of my experience watching the film and a lot of the things I feel about it. But the other review, I promise, is much shorter. <laughs> but it also has even more feels. And kind of, man, this, uh, the person's experience who wrote this review really hit home for me. And it's by uh, Nick Yusin at Nick Yusin. And they wrote, my dad died when I was 16. He was my best friend and the most extraordinary person I've ever known. The last conversation we ever had involved me holding his hand in a hospital room. One of the final things he gave me was his watch. I wear it every day. Needless to say, because my dad promised me makes me full on weep every time. So checkbox, my dad has passed. Checkbox to the last conversation we ever had, holding his hand in a hospital room. Also, yes, one of the final things he gave me was his watch. Uh, my dad didn't quite give me his watch, but one of the last things he ever asked me to do was take his watch back to uh, his fiance. And I did that. And now I have that watch. I wear it regularly. And so, yes, the because my dad promised me line will never fail to destroy me <laughs> every time I see it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Nick, I feel you. And <laughs> thanks for that review. But man, we this this movie, uh, uh, at least uh, to this point, I'm pretty sure is Nolan's longest. And we have done the same thing by, I think, delivering our longest. Uh, I think so. Episode. Yeah. So thank we'll you. Look at the editing. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> at least in terms of raw recording power, we have gone yeah. very long. So if you have stuck with us this long, we very much appreciate that once yes, again. Thank you. And if you just can't get enough of all our chit chat and all of our hashtag content, where can people continue to find some of that, Jake? They can find us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. We're at Friends at Dusk. You can email us at Friends at Dusk Pod at gmail.com. And you can find me on social media over on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris 4. And you can find me on Letterboxd at 808 Jake underscore. And where can they find you? I am on Instagram at Marshall.doig, Twitter at Marshall Doig, and on Letterboxd at M Doig. 
So please, as we always say and suggest, like and subscribe. And if you can, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. And also, if you feel so moved and can do so, please support us through our Spotify podcast page. And for any uh, list of resources uh, like that letterbox review we're talking about and for other stuff, uh, you can check out the show notes. And next episode, we're going to be discussing all of the influences on Dunkirk. Shifting from the science fiction to something that actually verifiably happened. Very, very, very real. Yeah. Yeah. Too real. We'll see. Um, But for now, that will do it for us. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.